This is part of a broader proposal bypassing the informed consent process by putting mRNA gene-based technology in foods. You could have a salad and get vaccinated against potential biological threats. Dr. Aaron Cariotti is former professor of psychiatry and head of the medical ethics program at UC Irvine and author of The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. The concept is treating the human being like a piece of hardware that requires mRNA or DNA software updates every few months. We discuss a frightening transition happening in medicine today, from core Hippocratic principles and informed consent to what's arguably a transhumanist, technocratic medical paradigm. It's a level of control over people's freedoms that the totalitarian dictators of the past could only have dreamed of. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Dr. Aaron Cariotti, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Always good to be with you, Jan. Well, today we're going to talk about the new abnormal. Um, congratulations on publishing it. Thank you. Um, we're going to start at the end, where you have this absolutely fascinating epilogue that talks about what Seattle might look like in 2030. Why don't you give me a little bit of a picture, and I think that'll give us a starting point. Yeah. So the book is a work of nonfiction, but the epilogue is a bit of a fictional imagination exercise, trying to project not too far in the future. I mean, 2030 is what, seven years away now. So it's, it's the kind of future date that most people can imagine coming before too long. And what the epilogue is attempting to do is to show where things are going in the next few years if the trends that I describe in the new abnormal continue. So what I did in this epilogue was imagine a software engineer living in Seattle and I tell a, a story of some things that happened to him. And I also paint a picture of this of the setting of how society in this new smart city is looking. And I try to present some of the new technologies and some of the new kind of surveillance and safety mechanisms initially in a way that can illustrate to the reader why people would want to buy onto these things, a kind of frictionless, uh, very convenient way of engaging in financial transactions and travel and you know, the gathering of information and so forth. And, and what looks appealing at first as the story that I tell in the epilogue 
unfolds begins to, you know, at first you see there's some flies in the ointment. There's some, certainly some downsides, at least to certain sectors of society um, in this new sort of technocratic uh, paradigm. But by the end, I think hopefully the reader understands what the true dangers and the true downsides of, uh, of this future would look like. And what I did in Seattle 2030 is uh, I, I didn't imagine any new technologies that have not yet been invented. I, I took things that are already available. They just haven't been rolled out or accepted or embraced on a sort of widespread society-wide scale yet. And I said, okay, if these things which are already with us are successfully rolled out and embraced on a large scale, what are they going to do to us as a society? How are they going to impact our freedoms and our fundamental rights? And so the epilogue is an attempt to spell it very clearly at the end of the book. If what I'm describing in the book is correct, and of course I believe that it is, and if, it if we continue on our current path without some serious course corrections, this is what life is going to look like in, in just a few years. Is this a future that you want for yourself or your children or your grandchildren? I really like how you wrote this part, part because you think to yourself as you're reading, wow, there's, there's a, there seems to be a lot of upside here, right? It's more, the, the question is, are you, is it a worthy trade-off for the downsides? So, you know, you're a prominent opponent of mandates of any sort, and you're, you're, you're an opponent of mandates on ethical grounds. So explain to me what, what that, why that is. Right. So my fight against vaccine mandates started with an attempt to defend the principle of informed consent, the principle that says any adult of sound mind should be able to make healthcare decisions about what care they receive, what medications or injections they accept or decline. And adults of sound mind should be able to make those decisions on behalf of their children who are too young to consent. Those are not decisions that should be made by the state or by other private entities like employers. And what I saw with vaccine mandates was a kind of steamrolling of this principle of informed consent, which has been a bulwark of 20th century medical ethics, articulated, of course, in the Nuremberg Code back in 1947, following the atrocities that we saw in German medicine during World War II under the Nazi regime. The world responded uh, with the Nuremberg trials. And in the wake of the Nuremberg trials, we developed the Nuremberg Code, which doesn't have the binding force of law, but certainly informed the laws of most civilized nations around the world. What happened during COVID is that those normal protections were suspended under the legal mechanism of a declared state of emergency. Uh, and it's, it's precisely during wartime, it's precisely during crises, things like pandemics or natural disasters, that it's most important for us to maintain our core ethical principles, because in ordinary times, we're not typically tempted to abandon those principles when society and, and, uh, and our lives are functioning well. We don't think much about you know, breaching these time-tested and well-grounded ethical principles. It's precisely when we're under pressure. Uh, it's precisely when we're in a state of fear or panic that we're most strongly tempted to abandon those principles, but that's precisely why they exist. 
And that's precisely why during those times, it's especially important to hold fast to those principles and not toss them overboard for the sake of convenience or for the sake of a supposed present or future greater good that may or may not actually uh, obtain or come about, I would venture to say in every case historically. Uh, when we abandon core ethical and core legal principles, disaster inevitably follows from that. And so I was an opponent of mandates during the pandemic because I was a, an opponent of mandates prior to the pandemic on, on what I believe are solid, time-tested grounds of the ethical treatment of people when they are subjects of human research and the ethical treatment of people uh, when it comes to clinical or medical interventions. And I just want to highlight to our viewers, in case they're not aware, that you know this is in a professional capacity as you were the head of the medical ethics program at UC Irvine. And uh, you know this is what you were, the centerpiece of what you were teaching young medical practitioners. That's right, exactly. So uh, when I was at the university and before I made the decision to, to legally challenge their vaccine mandate in court, I was trying to project ahead to the required ethics course that I teach all the medical students. And looking over the curricular materials and the themes that I cover every year, beginning with things like informed consent and a conversation about Nuremberg and so forth. And, and also talking to them about things like moral courage. You know, you may be at the sort of bottom of the hospital hierarchy as a medical student. And so there's a power differential and it, it can be really intimidating to step out and uh, raise a red flag if you see something unethical going on, if you, if you spot something that's going to harm patients or that's um, running afoul of sound ethical policy or, or, or the law. But you still have an obligation to do that for the sake of protecting our patients. Our, our duty uh, and our fidelity always has to be to the patients who place their trust in us. Our primary duty uh, and our primary fidelity is not to the institution, the hospital that we work for, for example. It's certainly not to the state, right? We are not the long arm of state policies. We are there to treat the sick and the sick are vulnerable. And we are there, first of all, to protect them and to make sure that they are not harmed and then to do everything in our power to heal them and to help them medically. So. I was trying to imagine having those kinds of conversations with medical students if I hadn't tried to behave in that way in my own professional life. So, uh, so I believed it was important not just to stand up in the lecture hall and try to talk about those principles and talk about moral courage uh, and ethical integrity, but actually to try to live them in my own actions. And so that was, that was sort of, I think, the final piece that I needed uh, to convince me that in my position, I couldn't just let this policy go unchallenged. Prior to reading The New Abnormal, I hadn't fully grasped how important Nuremberg was to public health approaches, just medicine in general, um, and, and also human rights, right? And obviously, like this whole class of crimes against humanity was created, as you outlined, That's right. to deal with the fact that people were saying, well, I, this was, what I was doing was just perfectly legal. Well, w whenever you draw a historical analogy uh, to the Nazis, people, I think, instinct instinctively recoil and uh, say, well, that kind of thing could never happen here. Uh, and so the first thing I think is to do is it's, it's important for uh, P Americans 
to understand that Nazi medicine in the 1930s was the best in the world. It was considered better than the, the medical institutions, uh, the medical institutions of, of education, the schools there were considered the best in the world. This was a civilized country, uh, not, a, not a backwards nation that just sort of turned barbaric uh, all of the sudden. And it's, it's also important when you look at Nuremberg to examine the defenses that these doctors mounted, um, the arguments that they made during the Nuremberg trials, as uncomfortable as this might be, you know, we're tempted to dismiss all of them simply as sort of sociopathic or psychopathic individuals that were just opportunists using the death camps and using the Nazi regime as, you know, a chance to willfully torture patients for the sake of uh, just inflicting pain. And, and perhaps Joseph Mengele and a few others were in that category. Uh, but many of them were considered distinguished men of science and very distinguished physicians. So, so what happened to them that they went so radically off the rails? Well, in their defense, they made two fundamental arguments that, quite frankly, were um, uh, in some senses difficult to answer. The first argument is everything that we did was legal. So under what law are you prosecuting us? Because the laws of Germany, when we performed these acts, permitted them. And that's a very good legal question. Under what laws were, uh, was the International Tribunal at Nuremberg attempting to prosecute these Nazi physicians? And to deal with that difficulty, we had to come up with this sort of natural law-based argument and this legal concept of crimes against humanity, the idea that even if the laws of a particular state would permit egregious violations like this, nonetheless, as a human being, as, as a member of the human family, there are certain things that you can't not know. Uh, there are certain you know, ethical norms that are inscribed in the human heart that should never be violated, and you have violated those things clearly. The second argument that the doctors made was one of convenience and even one of compassion, as strange as that might sound. So many of them were experimenting on prisoners who were in the concentration camps, in the death camps. And they argued that the conditions on the medical ward where these experiments were done were more humane than the conditions in the regular barracks where all the other prisoners were housed. There was better shelter there was better food, there was more rest from the, the literally sort of um, uh, you know, deathly level of, of work and working conditions in, in the death camps. And those things also were probably true. Nevertheless, that did not exonerate these physicians from, uh, from the, the egregious crimes and the egregious ethical violations that they committed against these patients by violating their informed consent and by doing experiments uh, on prisoners who were in no condition to freely consent or decline uh, participation in these experiments. And so the world collectively gave a resounding no to both of those justifications. People can wonder, how did how did a democratically elected chancellor of Germany become a totalitarian dictator? People forget that Hitler was democratically elected. He also never overturned the Weimar Constitution. 
what happened was the Germans governed for virtually the entirety, the Nazis governed for virtually the entirety of their time in power, 12 years, under Article 48 of the Weimar Constitution, which allowed for the suspension of German laws during a time of emergency. So there was this declared state of emergency. There was this sense of urgency that we should be allowed to do things that otherwise would not be permissible. Uh, the doctors, again, argued what we did was legal, and they argued what we did was uh, even humane in some twisted sense of, of that word, and it was expedient. Uh, we, we actually, they actually gained useful medical knowledge. That's another misconception that people have about the Nazi doctors is that they were just total quacks who were uh, doing completely scientifically useless experiments and killing people for the fun of it. Well, some of the, some of the experience, uh, experiments certainly had no scientific justification, but many of them yielded scientific and medical information that is still found in medical textbooks today. And it's a very difficult ethical question. Well, what do we do with this information that's already known um, how do we sort of put that genie back in the bottle? Should we, should we try to at least acknowledge uh, that this, this, this scientific information was gotten you know, by experiments that should never ever be repeated again? And during the pandemic, we started to see some of these same kinds of justifications being put forward uh, as to why we should abandon core ethical principles like informed consent, which is the very first principle articulated in the Nuremberg Code. You saw, well, we're in a state of emergency, so the, the normal ways of doing things can be suspended legally and ethically. Um, well, we need to do this for the sake of efficiency or for the sake of convenience, a needle in every arm, even, even if it's going to harm some people, a sort of one-size-fits-all public health policy uh, is necessary for the sake of efficiency. For example, that was a very common argument that you heard from our public health agencies. Um, and so when these arguments started to resurface, um, you know, it, it worried me a lot because history doesn't repeat itself. But as Mark Twain said, while it doesn't repeat itself, it often rhymes. So it's, historical analogies are useful, you know, not because a Nazi regime is going to rise up in the United States, but because you know, if some of the principles and some of the arguments that were advanced in Germany in the 1930s that led to very bad places are starting to be deployed again, that is cause for serious concern. No, absolutely. There's this question of you know, why was natural immunity ignored? I think there's several reasons. Um, I, I quipped on Twitter uh, a year or two ago that the CDC will recognize natural immunity when someone figures out how to monetize it. So, um, you know, when I filed my lawsuit on behalf of people with natural immunity, about 50% of the American population at that time had natural immunity, which would have cut a $100 billion industry, the vaccine industry, in half. Those profits would have been cut in half if half the population no longer needs your product. That number is closer to 90% today. Um, so there were financial interests at work pushing uh, us in the direction of a needle in every arm, even for people who didn't need the vaccine because they had superior immunity from a prior infection. But there's also been a, a sort of um, re, uh, reimagination of health and illness 
that's been developing for many years, but I think we fully, fully saw it manifested during the pandemic. And, and what I mean by that is we saw some strange reversals during the pandemic. We saw uh, that you know, prior to the pandemic, a person was presumed healthy uh, and you had to sort of establish or prove that you were sick. So if you wanted to miss work, you needed a note from a doctor saying that you were sick. But during the pandemic with uh, mass testing of asymptomatic individuals and sort of mass surveillance of the population, we saw that reverse so that people were presumed, presumed healthy, uh, presumed sick rather, and had to prove by some medical means that they were in fact healthy. So, you know, during the pandemic, if you wanted to go to work, you needed a negative COVID test. So what, what was behind that? Well, I think there's been a shift in how we imagine the human person and how we imagine the human body and how we conceptualize health and illness that's very, very consequential. And the mRNA vaccine paradigm has a lot to do with that because with the mRNA vaccines, they can be scaled up very quickly and they can be retooled or sort of reprogrammed, if you will, to try to deal with new variants that project hasn't actually worked out very well in terms of producing more efficacious vaccine. But the, the concept is almost sort of treating the human being like a piece of hardware that requires uh, genetic-based uh, coding, MR mRNA or DNA software updates every few months to sort of stay current and stay functional as though the human body were like an iPhone. Um, and again, that's, that's the same kind of assumption behind that. You're, you're presumed to be suboptimally functional until you get this intervention, right? Rather than, you know, your normal, flourishing, healthy human body until you get sick and then medicine can intervene to try to bring you back to that natural, healthy state. That's the Hippocratic paradigm for medicine. But the sort of technocratic paradigm for medicine sees you as just sort of a collection of physiological processes that, that we can tinker with and that we can upgrade and that we can improve and that we can enhance potentially indefinitely. Um, well, that's, that's a very profitable enterprise if people buy into it, right? Um, it's also, I think, a very concerning enterprise because it has the potential to do enormous harms by trying to make people through science and technology and medicine sort of more than human, right? The, the enhancement project of biotechnology. Uh, we're gonna end up, uh, I, I fear, dehumanizing people. We're gonna end up with not just a two-tiered society, the sort of Gattaca problem that is outlined in that movie that a lot of ethicists have talked about, but we're gonna have a complete reversal about sort of how we understand ourselves and our bodies and the natural processes of health and healing. And I don't think that's going to take us as individuals and us as a society to places that most of us want to go. Uh, you're not a piece of hardware that requires a software update every few months, um, you know, that the government or you should have to pay for. Uh, you are presumably a healthy, functioning human being. And if you're not, if you're, if you're impaired by sickness or disability, uh, let's look at how, how we can restore that function. But let's not treat the entire population as, they, as though they need ongoing uh, biological interventions just to sort of bring them up to date or up to speed uh, in terms of 
of health and human flourishing. And what's really interesting, I mean, you take this even a further level deeper, right? When you talk about how you believe that this uh, sort of neo-gnostic um, religious view or quasi-religious worldview is kind of upon us, it's a profoundly different way of envisioning That's right. the That's human right. relationship with reality. That's right. Right. And I'll just, I'll just add one more thing. You know, as I was reading in the early chapters, I was thinking there's so many commonalities. I have this instinctive sense there's something about the system that um, reminds me of, frankly, woke ideology, mm -hmm. which I've been deep, very, you know, kind of deep into trying to understand. And then you kind of reveal that in the later chapters through this meditation. So tell me about this. Yeah. That's right. So, uh, so I argue in the book that the transhumanist movement, which we can talk a little more about uh, later, and I, I would also argue the, the woke ideology are both kind of, if you look at them through the lens of, of these being novel religions, uh, they, would, they would be classified as what I call neo-Gnostic religions. Gnosticism was, um, was a collection of different uh, religious sects in the early centuries of Christianity that was sort of the main competitors to Christianity. And these different Gnostic sects had differences between them, but they had a few things in common. One of the things that they had in common uh, was, first of all, they were elitist. So it's only a few that have access to the secret knowledge, gnosis, where we get the word Gnosticism, uh, that really sort of know what's going on underneath it all. And those are the people that should be running the show. So it's, it's an elitist proposition in contrast to, again, its main con competitor in the early centuries uh, of the church was, was Orthodox Christianity that said, uh, in principle, salvation is available to everyone, not just to an elite class of people. That was the doctrine of grace that was proposed uh, by Christianity. The, the second feature that the Gnostics had in common was a kind of desire to overcome the material world. And they had that desire because in their cosmology, the, the good principle or the good God created only the spiritual world, created the soul and created the angels and um, created the unseen realm. But the material realm was created by an evil principle that was sort of working against that good principle. So they saw material reality as uh, fundamentally something that they needed to escape from or overcome. Now, again, in contrast to Christianity, Christianity had certain ascetical tendencies in relation to the body because of the doctrine of Christ's suffering and his crucifixion. But they also, Christianity never rejected the material world, right? The Christianity acknowledged the material world and the spiritual world are both created by the same God and that God is good. Therefore, the material world is good. It's affected by sin and the fall and so forth, but we can't reject it. And we certainly can't reject the human body because you know, in the Christian conception, Jesus Christ took on a human body and became a, a, a man, the second person of the Trinity. So the, these two competing theologies had different approaches to the material world and the human body. And the Gnostics recognized that the material world was, was ordered by sort of lawful processes, what we would call today the laws of science, but that order was something to be, to be overcome. And so the material world was sort of the raw material that they could do whatever they wanted with. Uh, so they took two fundamentally 
different approaches to the human body. Uh, some of the Gnostic sects rejected eating, drinking, and sex altogether. Like they, they, they would fast uh, very, very rigorously. Uh, and they would sometimes forbid all sexual relations because re reproduction was bodily and therefore it's bad. Those sects died out fairly quickly. You can imagine why. Hard to reproduce your ideas if you don't reproduce people. Uh, but other sects took a very sort of libertine approach to the human body. It doesn't matter anyway, so I could do whatever I want with it. Um, and the idea was to escape, uh, to escape this world into a higher spiritual realm, right? Rather, either through these extreme sort of ascetical modes or through just a, you know a total desecration of the material world and the human body. Um, but in both cases. The human body was what I described before. It was sort of just this collection of hardware, this collection of physiological processes that I can do whatever I want with. It wasn't an organic whole that was naturally oriented toward health and human flourishing. It was just stuff. Or, or made in God's image. That's or what I'm thinking is. Made in God's right. image and likeness yeah. and therefore worthy of some regard and respect. You know, nature can give us a norm of, of health. So, so disease is defined in relation to the, the natural health, healthy, normal human functioning, not in relation to some cyborg that we need to enhance the human body to become bigger, faster, stronger, smarter. So this, this transhumanist project of trying to do just those things, right? Melding the, the, the human and the techno technological, uh, making healthy people better than well, bigger, faster, stronger, smarter through gene editing, through cybernetics, through nanotechnology and so forth. This is just a sort of microwaved version of a very, very old ideology. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a new form of the ancient Gnostic attitude toward human beings, toward human nature and the human body that, um, that goes beyond just this or that technological application of science to actually recreating an entirely new worldview. Um, and I, as I argue in The New Abnormal, I think that conception of science and medicine, the technocratic, neo-Gnostic conception of science and medicine began to really overtake the traditional Hippocratic view of science and medicine that has dominated uh, science and medical progress in the West since the, since the time of Hippocrates. Well, what you're talking about is very, very profound, I think. Uh, One of the other uncanny uh, analogies or sort of the you know, history beginning to rhyme that occurred during the pandemic is precisely this very subtle shift that I described in the prologue of the book that happened with German medicine in the 1920s and the 1930s and led them down a very dark path. Uh, path. And again, caveat, I'm, I'm not comparing the current or the previous administration or our own leaders in this country to Hitler's Nazi regime. But nevertheless, there are these, these parallels that I think are very concerning in terms of the underlying mentality and the underlying arguments that are beginning to be advanced today. And so what happened to the German physicians in the 1920s and 1930s is that they became convinced that their primary allegiance or loyalty or fidelity was not to the sick individual patient in front of them, but to the social organism as a whole. So you had this metaphor being advanced in Germany of the, the Volk, the people as a whole, being healthy or sick. 
And if the people as a whole are healthy or sick, there are some members of the body politic or the population as a whole that are, are cancers because they're disabled, because they're um, a drain on resources, because they're criminalistic or whatever. And what does a physician do with a cancer but carve it out in order to enhance the health of the organism as a whole? So this is a very powerful meta metaphor that took hold in the minds of uh, physicians and organized medicine in Germany and led very readily to the eugenics programs in Germany of forced sterilization, followed by forced euthanasia, followed ultimately by the horrors of the experiments conducted in the death camps. Well, this kind of subtle shift is, I fear, beginning to happen in American medicine as well. We're starting to hear people talk in these very same terms. Just the other day, in a New York Times piece that was published about uh, another lawsuit that I'm uh, filing in California challenging Assembly Bill 2098, which would be a gag order on physicians and allow the medical board to discipline any physician who contradicts the, the government's preferred uh, COVID policies. Uh, so we're challenging this in federal court. The New York Times ran a piece about our case uh, just a day or two ago. In the very closing paragraph, the head of the American Board of Internal Medicine, a very you know, sort of powerful entity of, uh, of medicine, organized medicine in the United States, said that you know, physicians in California who are challenging this law need to understand that they have some loyalty or fidelity to uh, basically organized medicine to the quote-unquote experts that are making decisions about what doctors should be doing. And I immediately recoiled from that proposal because it's just not true. <laughs> uh, our, our loyalty is to the sick patient in front of us, um, the patient who has to put their trust in us. And if our loyalty shifts towards organized medicine, if our loyalty shifts to some social program or some state program, however worthy it might appear, uh, then doctors have lost their way. And they've lost their way because, uh, because patients need to be able to trust us. Otherwise, nothing in medicine is going to work. And the sick patient who's lying there on a gurney in pain, uh, and you know, I walk up and introduce myself for the first time and say, how can I help you? I'm, I'm, I'm here to help. That person needs to know I can trust this man that I've never met before um, because he's a doctor and I can trust doctors because their loyalty is always do the best for me as their patient and not you know, becoming agents of any other social program uh, or any other uh, program, even, even one developed by uh, these, these institutions of organized medicine in the United States. And, and let's be frank, these institutions of organized medicine have become and can easily become very politicized. And, uh, and, and when politics intervenes in the doctor-patient relationship, then we're in trouble. I mean, essentially, most of the policy that was implemented over the last several years was catastrophically bad. That's right. There's people that debate this, but you know this model of having policy set on high by a group of experts, if we ever needed evidence that this is a bad idea, we have the experiment That's in right. front of us. 
That's right. If people would only look at the evidence. So the, the subtitle of the new abnormal is the rise of the biomedical security state. And the biomedical security state is sort of the, the militarization of public health welded to digital technologies of surveillance and control that things like smartphones make possible now. Uh, and both of those um, two you know, apparatuses are backed up by the police powers of the state. So militarized public health, digital surveillance, and state power. And so this kind of militarized response to a pandemic threat did enormous collateral harms. And yet even after those harms became manifest, our agencies were not walking back misguided policies like the lockdowns or the school closures or the vaccine mandates uh, or the vaccine passports, which did not advance public health, which did not slow or stop the spread of COVID. And so it's, it's natural to ask the question, uh, why did those policies continue even after the, the harms, which greatly outweighed any benefits, became, uh, became clearly manifest? Maybe the answer has something to do with uh, COVID was an opportunity for uh, our agencies of you know, intelligence and, and, and military to do things and to test things out that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to test, uh, to, to treat COVID as though it were a uh, a, a foreign bioweapon threat, which is possible. We, we still ha have not proved that that's not the case. Um, but in terms of a, a threat to people's health, we totally ignored two fundamental facts about COVID, the two most basic epidemiological facts about COVID. First of all, the infection fatality rate, as Jay Bhattacharya and Johnny Unitas and others have shown, was 0.2%, not the 3 or 4% that was initially touted by the WHO. And uh, there's a large age gradient in terms of who dies of COVID. So the vast majority of deaths were people over the age of 70. Uh, people under the age of 50 were not at significant risk of mortality from COVID with or without the vaccine. Uh, those two basic epidemiological facts were ignored with our one-size-fits-all policies. And, uh, and that did enormous damage um, it damaged the trust of so many Americans in public health, in our government agencies, uh, where trust was already <laughs> fairly low, um, and, but also in organized medicine and in medical institutions. You know, it's very concerning that I, I, have, um, I have very accomplished, very educated people, CEOs, um, you know, high-powered lawyers, telling me prior to the pandemic, I always trusted doctors and I always trusted hospitals and I always trusted you know, medicine as a whole. Now they're, they're saying things like, I never want to see a physician again. I never want to go to a hospital again. I, I understand why their trust has been undermined and I don't blame them for thinking that. At the same time, this is not a good situation for us to find ourselves in. There's been a lot of damage over the last three years. And, you know, the new abnormal is not primarily a retrospective on what went wrong with the pandemic. I talk about that in the book. There's a lot of other excellent books out there that, that do a sort of post hoc analysis or post mortem on the pandemic. Uh, the book is about uh, why did these ha things happen during the pandemic? What's the 20 year history behind this? But more importantly, what's coming next? What does the future look like? What are the next steps in the rollout of this biosecurity paradigm? 
that I describe in the book so that people can be aware that even though some of these policies have been rolled back, the whole infrastructure at work is still in place, just waiting for the next declared public health crisis to advance even further uh, and to steamroll our rights and freedoms even more than what we saw during COVID. Well, you know, one of the things that is being developed uh, is uh, transgenic lettuce that will be able to produce, you know, mRNA to vaccine one head of lettuce per person. Yeah. Um, this is apparently what some people think is uh, reasonable to be working on after seeing, you know, how these uh, genetic vaccines have been deployed. What do you think? Yeah, the idea is genetically engineer uh, lettuce and spinach, and then you can have a salad and get vaccinated against, you know, potential biological threats. Um, there are some serious scientific problems with this proposal, oral tolerance and other issues that we probably don't have time to get into, but there's, there's very serious reasons to believe, one, this will not work for its intended purpose, and two, it's going to cause potentially some serious health harms. But I think more important for our conversation is this, this is part of a broader proposal of potentially bypassing the informed consent process by putting mRNA gene-based technology in foods. Uh, there's also research that I described at the very end of the prologue on self-spreading vaccines, vaccines that are themselves carried by respiratory viruses, viruses that supposedly are not supposed to make you very sick, but these, you know, 10%, 15% of the population gets a vaccine and the rest of the population sort of catches the vaccine contagiously because the vaccine itself is being carried by a virus. Um, to my mind, these are not just dangerous, but downright ludicrous proposals. I, I think they're entirely reckless, um, ethically and, um, and scientifically and medically. You offer some profoundly interesting explanations, aside from simply the financial motive, which I, I certainly believe is real and strong and so forth, as to why, when we know this technology has not, not been successful, succeeded. at least by any measure that I think you and I would yeah. would consider valid. Um, yet, you know, it's sort of there's there's this bizarre lettuce research going on, and the type of the research you described is is something that that is actively being researched as well. That's right. the The mRNA technology was attractive because it fits perfectly into that technocratic paradigm that I described, where it can be scaled up very very quickly. It can be retooled and sort of reprogrammed and updated very, very quickly. And, you know, this, this whole coterie of people who believe that human viruses that infect humans are sort of like computer viruses <laughs> and humans are sort of like really complicated computers when uh, computer viruses and biological viruses are nothing alike um, and human beings and computers are nothing alike. Nevertheless, this kind of paradigm makes the mRNA platform very, very attractive uh, to, to people who want to get into the business of constantly upgrading human beings through essentially what amounts to either gene editing or commandeering our own uh, cellular machinery to, uh, to express new proteins that are co coded for by mRNA that's given um, 
or administered through various means. So this is, this is gene therapy, something that would make most Americans pretty nervous if they knew that it was going on, but that's what it is. And proposals for gene therapy um, hold certainly promise for curing diseases. Uh, it, it, we have to steer through various ethical difficulties and potential pitfalls, but um, they also hold a lot of promise for people who want to attempt to enhance human beings, right? Not just cure illness, but change your eye color and your height and your weight and your strength and your intelligence. Um, and, uh, and if these things are being introduced during this state of emergency and Americans are accepting and getting used to them under a state of emergency, it do, it, it's not allowing for the kind of public debate careful deliberation, rational reflection that the use of these technologies really should require. As we're speaking here, I'm just sort of thinking back, you know, through through the years and just remembering all sorts of examples of, I guess, the celebration of this transhumanist kind of vision of reality and like how I think deeply, I'm thinking Hollywood, I'm yeah. thinking in textbooks, I'm thinking, you know, that this, this, this way of viewing the world is, is much deep, more deeply embedded than I had frankly really comprehended. Why is this such a big problem? So people need to understand the transhumanist ideology that I describe in chapter three of the book. And I argue that ultimately it's a religious ideology. The ultimate aim of the transhumanist movement is literally immortality. They want to make people um, live forever, forever, either staying alive in, in our sort of biological organic form forever, or this sort of transhumanist dream of uploading the contents of our consciousness uh, and our brains onto some cloud or main, mainframe in the sky and living forever in a cyber world. Um, so this is a this is a religious proposal. When you start talking about you know immortality and eternal life, you're you're talking about tapping into deep religious aspirations. Well, one of the reasons that it's attractive is that nihilistic atheism is very very hard for most people to live, and so those who have um, who have abandoned religious faith or who no longer find uh, the traditional Western religions credible still have these innate human longings that revealed religion taps into. The, the, the religious dimension is ineradicable. So the religious dimension involves the ability to ask questions like, who am I? Where did I come from? Where, did I go? Where am I going? What is the meaning of my life? Do I have a specific vocation or calling? Um, where does what is good and what is evil and where where do good and evil come from? Uh, what happens after I die? These this is these kinds of questions are questions that I think most human beings naturally ask at some point in their life, whether that leads them to a particular religious faith or not. They're they're still asking and wrestling with those questions, and transhumanism taps into that and says we can offer you salvation. Through, not through grace or not through some kind of religious or ascetical practice, we can offer you salvation through technology, right? Um, if, if only we had more money, if only we had, you know, we, we could advance uh, our technological agenda more quickly, 
we eventually will get you to the point where uh, we can fulfill these religious longings by technological means and, and, and by technological enhancements. And people buy into this to the point where they will cryogenically freeze their bodies. There's a couple of for-profit companies in the United States that will cryogenically freeze your entire body. Uh, you know, or, until, or, or just your head. I or just your head. Yeah, yeah. There's a discounted version mm -hmm. where you could just freeze your head because presumably once they figure out how to upload the con contents of your brain into the mainframe, you won't need the rest of your body anymore. So, I mean, that's a pretty serious commitment to, uh, to an idea if, if you're going to pay, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to cryogenically freeze your dead body after your demise. Um, and so uh, what is the answer to this? I, I think the answer to this um, is, first of all, we need to stop suppressing those religious questions because they're, <laughs> they're, they're going to pop out anyways, and people are going to seek answers uh, in the only places that you know, society allows them to seek answers, which right now is let's put all of our faith, all of our trust in science and technology. Um, so we need to be able to ask those questions and wrestle with those answers and allow people the freedom to pursue the paths that their conscience discerns are best for them in that regard, right? This is something that the Chinese Communist Party is loath to do. Um, and it's, it's something that we're seeing more and more of in the United States of, of encroachments, not just on freedom of speech, but encroachments on uh, religious liberty and the free expression of, of religion, particularly in ways that are more publicly visible. So, so I, think, I think we need to allow people to pursue human goods and human flourishing uh, in a way that allows them to follow their own conscience rather than having answers dictated to them by the state. Uh, and then Americans need to understand that uh, scientism, this, mm -hmm. this ideology that I'm describing, is totally different from science. Science is an open-ended inquiry that requires intellectual humility and you know, the openness to new information and revising my ideas on an ongoing basis. Uh, but having scientific conclusions dictated to me from the top and not being able to question them is not science. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a total, it's an authoritarian and ultimately a totalitarian ideology. And if, if people don't want to live in what will look more and more like a totalitarian society, uh, they need to wake up and push back against this. And, and again, it, totalitarianism, it's important to understand what I mean by that term, too. Totalitarianism can exist without secret police and without concentration camps and even without mass surveillance, as horrifying as all of those things are. The central feature of all totalitarian systems, according to Eric Vogelin, the great theorist of 20th century totalitarianisms, uh, the, the central feature is the inability to ask certain questions, the forbidding of questions, the, the, the cancellation of people for asking the wrong questions or posing the wrong ideas. That's what all the totalitarian systems of the 20th century had in common. That was the core, that was the essence of their ideology. Matthias Desmond draws a distinction between uh, a totalitarian uh, regime and a dictatorship. He says in a dictatorship, the dictator rules through external fear. You're afraid to say what you think because you, know, you might get canceled for it or you, know, you might get put in jail or you may be punished in some way. You're afraid to do certain things because of external punishments. But a totalitarian system, 
ultimately, the, the, the secret police and the punishments can decline over time because people have absor- themselves have absorbed the ideology and they do the, can- the, the population does the cancellation for the, the state or the regime or the party. Um, they do the work of informing on dissidents. They do the work of, and when a significant portion of the population internalizes the ide- ideology, the really terrifying thing is that those questions that would challenge the regime simply no longer occur to people. It's internalized to such an extent that people's entire thought process and their perceptions are shaped by the totalitarian system such that ideas of freedom or dissent or what have you just simply don't occur to people anymore. They're, they're, they're entirely foreign um, and people are compliant because that's the only thing that they know and they, they don't have the rational capacity or the imagination to, to conceive of anything that might be different. That, to my mind, is the worst form of imprisonment. A dictatorship gives you these sort of external pressures to behave in a certain way. And that's horrifying, right? Nobody wants that. But these, you know, th- this kind of interior prison that a totalitarian system eventually induces in a large portion of the population is, I would argue, an even worse form of enslavement. Because if you're not interiorly free to have certain thoughts or to ask certain questions, you, you truly are uh, a slave in the deepest sense of that term. Absolutely something that must be pushed back against. So the obvious thing that comes to my mind at this point is really that it's fear that kind of gets people to inhale this totalitarian or mass-formed way of thinking. And, you know, fear was, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, was prevalent everywhere. And in fact, there were these so-called nudge units, like in the UK, and I'm sure there were analogous uh, modes of operation in the U.S., Canada, and other places. So how is this connected? So fear bewilders us. It makes us lose our heads. I can put on my clinical psychiatrist hat for a moment and just say treating people that are under a chronic state of fear or an overwhelming state of fear, as happens with anxiety disorders, for example, uh, that level of chronic sustained fear or acute fear impairs our ability to think clearly and to reason well and to sift information carefully. Um, Fear and the fight or flight response is adaptive and helpful in very short-term situations where there's an immediate threat to us. But if fear is sustained for a long period of time, for hours, days, weeks, or in the case of the pandemic, for literally for years. And as you pointed out, the fear in the population was not just because we had this novel virus, but the way in which information was presented to the public involved very exquisite levels of, for lack of a better word, uh, military-grade propaganda designed to elevate and, and intensify, uh, intensify people's fears. And the reason for that is people who are afraid are much easier to control. And if you want a a passive, compliant population that's going to do whatever the authorities are telling them to do, fear, as has been known by dictators for centuries, fear is a good way 
to, to do that to a population. I just want to jump in briefly. So, you know, we know from Laura Dodsworth's work in the UK, you know, that this was an active thing the government did, this behavioral right. unit, you know, in the UK government. Do we know as a fact that other governments were using the same sort of tools deliberately? Yeah, so it's, it's clear, for example, in Canada that people involved in the military and intelligence sectors of the Canadian government were central in terms of crafting public health messaging and the Canadian government's communications response. So I think we have considerable evidence that not only was this happening in Great Britain, but also in Canada and in the United States. And fear was, fear was sustained uh, even after we had a lot of robust scientific information at hand that could have been communicated to the public that would have laid many of our fears. And we chose not to present that information to the public or to downplay it or to sideline it. I believe all of that was deliberate as well. Mm. And it's, uh, it's a very concerning development that the government would employ this kind of psychological technique against its own population in order to get control population level behavior. Yeah, one of the things that just struck me about uh, Dr. Fauci's pronouncements, for example, you know, at one point he's on record saying that the reason he talked about masks the way he did was to elicit a particular behavioral outcome. That's right. And just, I remember like after, when, when, when he said that, it, I looked at almost everything he said through that kind of lens and it almost looked like everything he said had That's that right. in mind. It was fascinating. I don't know if I'm right about it. Well, our entire public mm -hmm. health apparatus operated in that way. So. Uh, a well-functioning, healthy, responsible public health system would say, let's take constantly evolving and complicated scientific information and uh, simplify it so that the public can understand it, which will inevitably involve, you know, losing some nuance and oversimplifying in some cases, but still trying to communicate that information as accurately as possible in a way that people can digest and understand it so that individuals can make reasonable decisions for themselves and their families about COVID mitigation measures. That's not what we did. What we did instead is the public health authorities decided in advance what behavioral outcome they wanted. Everyone wear a mask or two masks. Everyone stay at home. All the schools should close. Everyone should get you know, a needle in every arm. And they said, what do we need to present to the public in order to get them to do that thing that we've already predetermined in advance is the best or the right or the good thing for them to do. Now, presenting information only to get people to behave in a certain way is a perfect definition for propaganda. So this was not responsible communication of science, of epidemiological data, of public health information. This was propaganda. This was highlighting, exaggerating, spinning, spin doctoring information that we think will move people in this particular behavioral direction and squashing, sidelining, silencing, canceling, downplaying, or attacking information, even if it's true information, that might lead people in a different direction. What you're describing basically sort of encapsulates this. Uh new way of looking, kind of collective way of looking right. at health. We know what's best for everyone. Um, and th this, this elite, th this group of Gnostic elites or this 
or, or this elite clerisy who you know has access to the right way that we should be moving the, 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 they can discern the direction of history and what the future should look like. We're the ones who have to call the shots because ordinary people don't have the wherewithal to make the right decisions on their own behalf. I mean, look where democracy got us. We got, you know, we got, we got messy things like Brexit or Trump or whatever. So, so ordinary people can't be trusted and ordinary people's judgment and common sense cannot be trusted. Uh, we've basically, our job is to tell people what to think <laughs> and to make people believe that they're coming to their own conclusions, whereas in fact, they're, they're just being led along in the direction that we would like to move them. Uh, this is condescending. This is arrogant, and politically, this is very, very dangerous, in my view. You reference Orwell in the book repeatedly, especially this concept of newspeak, right? Changing language. Um, you also reference Huxley, like this, to the the other kind of you know dystopian, dystopian. model, yeah. right? Orwell's Animal Farm in 1984 presented a society, a dystopian society in which there was a very high level of top-down authoritarian control over people's lives. And this was done through newspeak, through manipulation of language. If you can manipulate uh, the words that people are allowed to use and the way in which people are allowed to talk, you can actually change the way that people think. Orwell talked about this in a, in a ter terrific essay called Politics and the English Language. Um, and or Orwell understood that the control of language and also the control of the flow of information was necessary for a regime like this to take hold. So you had the main character in 1984 working for the, the euphemistically termed Ministry of Truth, and he was responsible for taking last week's newspaper and dropping it down what was called the memory hole, literally an incinerator, right? So uh, history, even history as recent as last week, was rewritten in order to advance what the party wanted to do today. So, um, you know, last week the newspaper said that, uh, you know, Oceania is allies with Eurasia. But uh, this week the newspaper says Oceania is at war with Eurasia. And in fact, we have always been at war with Eurasia. So that, that thing that you think you read, or you think you heard last week has been shoved down the memory hole. And you know, we pretend that it was never said, we pretend that it was never done. And I think in the, in the censorship regime that we saw manifesting in a, in a new way and in a very powerful way during the COVID pandemic, you see many of those same practices that you know, public health authority can stand up and say something that's 180 degrees different from what he said last month, which is fine if the information has developed or if there's new information, but there's never an acknowledgement that we have actually changed our minds and that what we said last month, we now believe to be wrong. And gosh, we're sorry for giving you advice based on that information that we now believe is wrong. And, but, but, but here's why we're gonna you know, change that and rectify that. That's not what happened. People just came up and said something new every week or every month and pretended like what they had said or what they had done in the past just simply never existed. So there was never any acknowledgement of the primacy of truth. Um, it was always the, the, you know, the primacy of authority that was at work. And that's very Orwellian, if you will. So Hux Huxley's dystopia 
was a little different. It was kind of a, a more soft totalitarianism where you didn't have secret police and men in jackboots and kind of this, uh, this heavy-handed police state level of authoritarianism, keeping everyone in line and inducing fear in the population. You had a kind of a complacent, lethargic population that was kept, you know, more or less content, but in a very dehumanized way by drugs. So you had this fictional drug soma that everyone was taking every time they felt any, you know, felt any angst or, uh, or, or you know, started wondering about the meaning of their life or something like that. They could sort of medicate away these these questions or these difficulties, and. Um, and then you had a society that was just filled with all kinds of diversions where people were engaged in just sort of this superficial hedonistic type of uh, a society that kept them more or less placid and kind of contented in a superficial way and, and took away people's um, drive to uh, actually step back and look at their society and ask how they were living individually and collectively and, and you know, decide to, to say, no, this is not how I want to be as a human being. The other thing that Huxley understood very clearly was the role of biotechnology. So much of Brave New World is about advances in biotechnology and the ways in which that can become dehumanizing. So all new human beings are, are bred in this sort of, in these artificial wombs, you know, using uh, in vitro methods and the, the old fashioned uh, sort of messy means of reproduction is now used only for the purposes of, of pleasure and has nothing to do with the generation of, of new life. And there's quality control measures that, you know, one of the main characters works at the at the state hatchery where they you know they, they run they run the embryos and the fetuses through the test tube process on into birth there's behavioral conditioning involved in uh, in the brave new world where these subliminal messages are sort of fed to people while they sleep that shape their thinking and so I think both Huxley in terms of his sort of technocratic um, you know biologically driven, kind of shaping of the human mass of, of passive people and, you know, sort of drugging people to keep them placid the way we do, let's say, with marijuana these days, uh, was really prescient in terms of seeing that aspect of social developments. Uh, Huxley saw the importance of a language, the importance of controlling the flow of information and censorship in terms of controlling populations, and the importance actually of backing up some of these measures with the police powers of the state. And I think what we had before COVID was a little more uh, Huxley, a little more sort of soft kind of uh, biotechnology-based forms of uh, dehumanization. But what we saw during COVID is that, uh, is that the Orwellian aspect of the dystopian regime also sort of rose up to the point where now we have both of them sort of working hand in glove. And so I think both of, both of those writers, sad to say, um, are really prophets for our own day. And most people have heard of these books, right? Uh, they may believe that they've read them because they've read about them, but it's a good time for folks to go back and read them for the first time or reread them if they read them 
way back in high school and look through those works of brilliant sort of prophetic fiction at our contemporary world and see what they see. They weren't supposed to be instruction manuals, right? They're supposed that's to be. Right. They're supposed to be, uh, supposed warnings, to be warnings about where lessons, not to go. But, yeah, that's right. right. That's right. right. We did. We apparently didn't heed the warnings very well. So we're sitting here, and we're kind of smiling at each other a bit because the reality is deeply troubling. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that I loved about your book is the fact that that you offer some really thoughtful directions for people to take even, you know, the average person yeah. in their lives at this point to try to actually do something meaningful in the face of, you know, this potential radical shift in society. So the last chapter of the book, I, I do try to offer the reader some hope. And, um, and I, I think it's sincere hope because th there's some things that I fundamentally believe. First of all, I believe human beings are very resilient. I also believe that regimes built upon lies ultimately will collapse. Now they can continue as Soviet communism uh, showed us. They can continue for an unbearably long period of time and enormous human damage can be done in the meantime. So, but eventually they will collapse. And the question for us is how to avoid getting to the point where we find ourselves in a dehumanizing society or a dehumanizing regime. And if we're, if we're already in one, how do we help to uh, manifest the lies and the contradictions of that re regime sooner so that it collapses sooner rather than later? But ultimately, I do believe that um, that the truth will prevail. I, I like to say that human nature, and nature itself, but human nature also, always bats in the bottom of the ninth inning, meaning you can sort of cheat things for a, a certain period of time. And you can, you can establish a society or a regime that's built upon lies about what it means to be a human being or what it means to, to be a human being in relation to others. But ultimately, that's not going to be sustainable. So that's one source of hope. Uh, the second, which is that human beings are very resilient, and I, and I think in our hearts, we can sense when we are not living in a way that is conducive to health and human flourishing. And people are extremely creative at finding ways to resist, to build you know, alternative institutions, to found and begin new things when the old institutions have become sclerotic or too corrupt to be, to be reformed or redeemed in any meaningful way. We can begin again. We can begin anew. Uh, Hannah Arendt, the, the great writer, uh, you know, who talked about 20th century totalitarianisms and the banality of evil. In her philosophy, she talks about the gift of what she calls natality, the fact that a new generation is born and comes into the world, you know, frequently, <laughs> like all the time. And that new beginning is always a, a source of hope for the human race, that our generation may have messed things up, but the next generation comes into the world. That's a source of perennial renewal for human beings. So in the last chapter of the book, I do offer some policy proposals in my areas of expertise, which have to do with public health. So I talk about 
ways that we can meaningfully reform some of our public health agencies, like the CDC, the FDA, and the NIH, which failed us during the mm -hmm. pandemic. But I, I also try to offer some broader suggestions that have to do with, first of all, overcoming our fear. Well, so, so I want to touch on that a bit, because yeah. that's, I remember you talking very specifically about this as something that, you know, an individual reader, like this is, this is sort of the first thing, isn't it? Yeah. Like, but, but easier said than done. Well, there are small ways that we can begin to develop the ability to push back against our fears. And as a psychiatrist, the way to overcome fear and anxiety is not avoidance, it's exposure. Right? It's a it's step by step, a graded small scale level, building to a medium scale level, building to a larger scale level of literally facing our fears. And the therapist becomes a kind of coach to help you do that in a in a stepwise process so that you don't get overwhelmed. So so if we have retreated, if we have shrunken back from these external threats. Uh, and stopped living as human beings, stopped being together, stopped relating to one another, stopped taking risks. So safety is a, is a fundamental need of the human person. But risk is also a fundamental need of the human person. And those two things have to be kept in balance. A society where no one ever takes any risks is not a society, hmm. <laughs> right? It's, it's a collection of corpses. Um, so, uh, so learning once again to be daring, learning once again to be risk, uh, to, to take risks, not reckless risks, but, but sensible, reasonable, rational ways of moving forward and of pressing forward in spite of dangers and in spite of difficulties. I think collectively, each and every one of us has to kind of relearn that after we engaged in this, this massive experiment of essentially what amounted to radical avoidance for almost three years. Uh, we need we need to get back to this process of actually facing our fears and being willing to live life again on its own terms. But despite our frailty and our mortality and our vulnerability, we're always going to be vulnerable to illness, to disability, and ultimately to death. But you know, as Montaigne said, he who has learned to overcome the fear of death has learned how to live. Socrates said the same thing. He said, all philosophy, philosophia, the love of wisdom, is a preparation for death. And Socrates faced his own death without fear because he had learned to put his life under the, you know, under the banner of truth. I'm going to serve the truth. I'm going to pursue the truth wherever it can be found. Uh, I'm going to be humble and acknowledge that I don't know everything, right? Which is why he was the wisest man in Athens, because he asked questions. Um, you know, we need we need to uh, we need as a society to capture that kind of daring spirit again. To be willing to ask questions, to be willing to take risks, uh, to humbly acknowledge that we don't know everything and that we can't completely control nature. We can't completely control pandemics, but we can still live together. We can still support one another. We can still care for the sick when they get sick. Um, so that's that's it's really important for us to overcome our fear, because if we're still living in a state of fear, we're paralyzed. Literally, I mean, severe fear, you know, anyone who's ever experienced a panic attack knows that fear will literally, literally paralyze you, not just physically, but also mentally. You, you, you can't move, you can't think when you are terrified. You can't do anything. Um, so, so this issue of fear, I think, is very important. And, you know, I, 
you may say, I'm not a public health official. I'm not a, I'm not a person with political power. I'm not a person in the media. You know, what can I do to sort of fix the kind of problems that you've sketched? Well, there's, there's a lot you can do. Um, you could start by working on, you know, whatever fear you've absorbed, working on overcoming that. Work on, you know, starting at a small scale, meeting and gathering and talking and thinking with people face to face at the neighborhood level, uh, at the at the school level, at the community level. I mean, you know, start a book club, reading reading great, great works of literature. You know, you could start a dystopian book club, and you know, maybe maybe mix in some comedy so everyone doesn't get too depressed. So I think there's a lot that ordinary people can do. Um, people are not powerless. They were made to fear power, feel powerless during the pandemic, but they're not. They're not powerless. I think that's fantastic advice. I think that's advice I could take myself. So thank you for that. There's at least a couple of instances that I've been thinking about where your, you know, things that you've written about the book and your epilogue, just, you know, general concepts in the new abnormal that uh, we're kind of seeing manifest. You know, one of them, for example, is in China right yeah. now. It's like whole kind of swaths of cities. Suddenly everyone's code turns red and they can't move. They can't yeah. transport. So this is, this is the society that you're describing all part of the plan. I think this is the first time that we've seen these kinds of mass gatherings in China pushing back against the regime since the Tiananmen Square. It's horrifying to see companies like Apple uh, supporting the regime by removing airdrop from the iPhones, which was the only way that many of these protesters could communicate with one another during the protests because uh, that was a, that was an app that didn't go through the the network, the cellular network there in China that the state could control. And rather than celebrating the fact that they had that technological mechanism that permitted communication and freedom for the Chinese protesters, Apple, for their own probably financial reasons, went ahead and sided with the regime and took away that thing that all of us in the West enjoy on our iPhones. Um, but th these Chinese protests are also heartening because they illustrate what I, you know, what I said in regards to human nature, that uh, human nature always bats in the bottom of the ninth inning and regimes that are built upon lies eventually will fall. So I don't know when the tyranny in China will end. I hope that it's sooner rather than later. But I know that a regime that operates the way the Chinese Communist Party operates cannot sustain itself forever because it's built upon lies, it's built upon uh, a, a house of cards, and under the right social conditions and with, a, with, you know, with sufficient pushback from the citizens, the party is going to lose control and things are going to have to change. I hope these are signs that something like that may be happening, or at least a, an initial stage in, in a movement in that direction. Um, but, uh, you know, we have to, we have to take heart that, uh, that there are people there who have been pushed beyond their limit, which is horrifying. And now they are manifesting what all of us know to be true, which is um, the, the human person's ability to discern that in spite of all the propaganda that I've been fed my entire life, um, in spite of all the control of education and the flow of information and what I can access, I still know in my heart that I should have the, the ability 
to move around in my own country freely. I should have the ability to speak freely. I should have the ability to earn a living for my family and to support my children. I mean, those are basic fundamental human truths that are inscribed on the human heart and no tyrannical regime can ever fully eradicate them. You know, and this is all, you know, despite the deployment of, you know, a lot of these technologies that, That's right. you know, you argue in the new abnormal, you know, really need to be stopped, right? That's right. So I, I talk about the next stages in the biosecurity surveillance regime, what's coming next, because COVID, in a sense, is just the beginning. My book is more about the future than it is about the past three years. And the first step is biometric, uh, digital IDs tied to biometric data, face IDs, retinal scans, fingerprints. We see this with the clear system at the airports. Now uh, we see this in many other sort of uh, sectors uh, and, and private corporations utilizing these things more and more, but ultimately a system in which your, your passport is now stored in the cloud and it's tied to uh, information about your health and eventually with wearable and implantable devices, your moment-to-moment -moment health, your vital signs and your emotional state and so forth. This is going to give governments and their private corporations that partner with governments, unprecedented access and intrusive access to moment-to-moment -moment information about you that most people should be very, very reluctant to relinquish. Those will be tied to a financial system that centers around central bank digital currencies. So this will also be a step that will be rolled out in the near future. And central bank digital currencies need to be distinguished from decentralized digital currencies like Bitcoin, a CBDC uh, will allow the government to track each and every one of your financial transactions. Um, this has already been done in China with the, the digital, the e yuan, mm -hmm. which was rolled out during the Beijing Olympics. And they showed during the Olympics that they could induce not only their entire population, you know, to force them to use this, which is not surprising given the level of control the regime has. But they also required any of the participants from the other countries, any of the visitors from the other countries, to download that app and utilize that uh, centrally controlled digital currency during the games. That app is still on their phone tracking their financial transactions and lots of other information that can be gleaned from your smartphone. So they, they, they were able to export this internationally mm. using that event as a kind of fulcrum or leverage to do that. The feds are have already publicly acknowledged that they they want to issue a digital dollar. Uh, they're going to pitch it as being a sort of frictionless ease of use. You know, if you forget your wallet at home or your passport at home and you're at the airport, no problem. We'll just scan your iris and you can, you know, you can still get on the plane. You can still, you know, make transactions on the other end using your digital wallet tied into your uh, digital ID. Um, and th this all sounds very kind of uh, convenient. convenient and effective. And, um, and yet, it's, I think it's important for people to understand that you know, what you have in your digital wallet is not actually money because these digital currencies are programmable and they can have conditions attached to them. So, for example, let's say the federal government gives you a, a tax credit. You get $1,000 back from the federal government because, you know, whatever, you have a child or something. Um, that $1,000 in your digital wallet is not the same thing as $1,000 cash or you know $1,000 in your bank account. 
because the government can also say, well, you need to spend that $1,000 sometime in the next nine months or it's going to disappear. Or you need to spend that $1,000 only on these favored industries and you're not allowed to spend it on these disfavored industries or these disfavored, you know, you cannot give that money to the Epoch Times because, you know, they're not a state approved media organization or whatever. So what you have in your digital wallet is actually not a dollar, like a dollar bill. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of temporary voucher to nudge your economic and transactional behavior in particular directions. Well, the push is going to be toward a cashless society where the digital dollar or other forms of centrally controlled digital currencies are the only way to spend money and the only way to engage in financial transactions. So the government knows all of your financial transactions. It can tax them on the spot. Um, if you're buying too much meat, it can, you know, an algorithm in the sky can turn off your ability to buy meat or to buy gasoline or, you know, what, cigarettes or whatever the disfavored sort of behavior that you're engaged in. Or travel to a protest. Exactly, or travel to a protest. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the, the, the real problem with this system is that it will be such a pervasive and complete level of control that the system itself will become impossible to resist once it's fully put in place. Why? Because if you try to mount resistance, a person or an algorithm in the sky will simply push a button and you can't travel. Your car won't turn on. Your, you cannot buy or sell anything. It can lock you out, basically lock you out of the markets. Um, it, it's a form of exile that regimes of the past could never have actually instantiated, right? It's a level of control over people's freedoms uh, that this kind of technology and this kind of system will make possible that the totalitarian dictators of the past could only have dreamed of. Well, and we, we saw a little bit of what that might look like with how the Canadian government dealt with the truckers, That's purpose, right. for example. That's right. You know, I think you're, you're seeing some of the things that you've written about in the new abnormal country. And this is even, you know, in this court case that you're involved with, you know, Missouri uh, versus Biden, right? Like, I mean, some of the discovery materials that have, that have come out, some of the emails, the sort of close communication and uh, collaboration between the government and big tech, kind of astounding. It is astounding. I think this will turn out to be the, the biggest First Amendment free speech case um, uh, of in decades. I, I don't want to sound too grandiose, but, but what we found on Discovery suggests that this public-private partnership regime of censorship was even more pervasive and widespread in the various federal agencies than we initially suspected when we filed the lawsuit. So this is a lawsuit that the state attorney generals of Missouri and Louisiana have filed against many senior officials in the, in the administration, along with four private plaintiffs, myself, uh, Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Koldorf, co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, and Health Freedom Louisiana, which is a nonprofit medical freedom group in that state. And, and we are alleging that the government has been colluding with big tech companies, particularly social media companies like Facebook and Twitter and so forth, Google, to censor any information that contradicted the government's preferred pandemic policies. And in fact, we're seeing now that this was being done to censor 
other forms of information too related to inte uh, election integrity and the Hunter Biden laptop story and, and other things. But we're, we're focused on the censorship of uh, people who challenged COVID policies during the pandemic. And what we're finding is that many, many federal agencies, not just the HHS agencies responsible for public health, but also DHS agencies responsible for you know, security and, and intelligence and so forth, were engaged in this operation. Now, arguably, uh, I say arguably because there's legal debate about this, but, but arguably, private social media companies can censor, they can decide who to kick off their platform and who to allow on their platform. Inarguably, no one doubts that the federal government cannot do that. That's a clear violation of Americans' First Amendment free speech rights. The federal government can also not suborn private entities to do its bidding. It cannot, you know, under the threat of if you don't do our bidding, we're going we're gonna to make life difficult through more regulation uh, and so forth. Uh, they, they cannot basically lean on the social media's uh, companies to become the long arm of their censorship regime. But this is exactly what was happening over the last three years. And, and the communications and emails that we've uh, that we've received so far on discovery suggests that this was happening at a very finely granular level, like down to um, a, a senior government official saying, why hasn't so-and-so, you know, this high profile account been removed from your platform yet? We don't like him. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, the text message coming back from the senior executive at Facebook or, or Twitter saying, oh, don't worry, we'll take care of it right away, and boom, the person is gone. Um, so the government jumps, the, the, the companies under you know, fear of regulation or running into difficulties with the government, which can make life very difficult for them if it wants to, um, saying, you know, okay, how high should we jump and, and where should we go and what should we do? Uh, this, is, uh, this is an absolutely, uh, egregious seems like a, a soft word for it. People in the administration did it so casually without any afterthought, which suggests to me that, you know, at a certain point it became so normalized in the federal government to do this that it probably didn't occur to many of the people involved that they were doing something illegal and not, not just something illegal, but something that violated the highest laws you know, of the land, which is the, which is the laws articulated in the Constitution of the United States. So, um, so this is a very serious issue. Science cannot progress without freedom of speech. Science cannot progress without deliberation and debate and conjecture and refutation. And, um, you know, if you, if you try to lock in a scientific consensus and make it unassailable, then scientific progress will halt immediately on that issue. Um, because we make progress when you're allowed to challenge a consensus or to challenge what people thought that they knew, right? If you just read the history of science, that's how science proceeds. Um, so this is detrimental to science. Um, it's detrimental to, obviously, to the people who do not get a chance to offer their perspectives or their opinions. But the First Amendment cases in the United States also say that freedom of speech is important not just, the Supreme Court has articulated this, not just for the person who's speaking, right? So if my free speech rights are violated, that's bad because mm -hmm. I'm not allowed to say what I wanna say, right? 
or my, my ideas can't gain any purchase in the public square because I'm silenced, right? So that's bad. But, um, but I'm not the only one harmed by that. Uh, the Supreme Court has said, no, free speech also exists for the receiver of the speech, right? That people have a right to hear both sides of a debated question so that they can make a reasoned judgment based on all the available evidence and all of the available opinions and, you know, whichever, uh, whichever, you know, side makes their case more compellingly should, you know, gain more adherence. And so it's the American people as a whole that are harmed by the free speech violations, even if it's the free speech violations of a few, right? Um, and th that's, that's among the many reasons why I think this Missouri v. Biden case is so important and so consequential because I don't, I don't think it's ex an exaggeration, Jan, to say that never in our history have we seen this level of free speech violation by the federal government that we've seen over the last three years. And, and, I mean, this absolutely has to stop or you know, our, our little experiment in this ordered democratic republic is going to come to a grinding halt. There's so much more we could talk about here today. Um, I think any final thoughts as we finish? Yeah, I, I, I want to end on a note of, of hope, right? Um, if you stand up and challenge this emerging regime, you may lose some friends. Uh, you may uh, be called names. You may be accused of you know, being this or that, a conspiracy theorist or a COVID denier or any of the other sort of terms of abuse that have been hurled at people that are trying to ask questions and trying to challenge uh, the, the public health narrative that's emerged over the last three years. But um, as someone who's had a little bit of experience actually doing this, uh, I will say, first of all, there's nothing better than waking up with a clear conscience every day. And also you're gonna meet new friends, genuine friends, people who really care about, not only about you, but about the pursuit of truth. And there'll be people that you have all kinds of interesting disagreements with, which is good. I mean, we, we should disagree with the people uh, that we're hanging around with and talking with and, and not exist just in a bubble. Um, but you will meet uh, a genuine group of uh, now, I would say millions of Americans and others around the world who are recognizing that, hey, something is not right. Uh, and what happened to us over the last three years is not right. And who are very concerned about the future that we're gonna hand on to our children and grandchildren. And um, you know, it's, it's never too late to reconsider assumptions that you thought were valid uh, you know, back in 2020. And it's never too late um, to be able to admit that, hey, yeah, may, maybe I endorsed something or maybe I did something that now I, I, I regret. That's okay, in fact, that's a good thing. I think it, it takes tremendous moral courage to admit uh, that you've changed your mind or to admit that you regret you know, saying or doing something in the past. Uh, and, and so I would invite people from across the spectrum of opinions on the themes that we've talked about today uh, just to try to remain open-minded and try to listen to people on both sides of these, this debate and not be afraid of where the evidence or the truth might lead you. Well, Dr. Aaron Cariotti, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Jan. Thank you all for joining Dr. Aaron Cariotti and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. Mm -hmm.